Well, hey, Bethel, good to share God's word with you this morning. If you'll take your Bibles, if you're not there already, turn with me to John chapter 3. And uh, I'd like to say a big thanks to my esteemed colleague for his work this morning in helping us to be free from our doubts about God's existence and the Bible's truthfulness. I can say this because Steve's not here this morning, but I really believe that Brad Lagos is the smartest guy that we have on staff here. And uh, I I really do mean that. I am very glad that uh, he is on our team. If you couldn't tell... This is uh, Brad's area of expertise and passion, the apologetics area, and uh, he's really, really good at that. And uh, I, however, have never personally been nominated for the smartest person around here. And uh, that's okay, because this morning in particular, I'm just going to talk about Jesus, okay? And you don't have to be very smart to talk about Jesus. You just have to talk about what he did and who he is, and the rest of it just kind of falls into place. So we're just going to do that here in the next few moments that we have. We're going to talk about Jesus. Is everybody okay with that? All right. You know what? This really is the story of our church. You know, it really is the story of Bethel Church. We are not the smartest group of people in the world. And I don't mean to offend you by that, but we're not. Okay, I don't have a bunch of rocket scientists and medical doctors and all that kind of stuff here. But what we are and what I love about our church is we're a church who's really striving to be about all all about Jesus Christ, for him to be the center of everything that we do. And if we get that right, everything else falls into place. And so that's what we're trying to do around here and what we're going to try and do this morning. And I hope that you haven't turned us out, tuned us out this morning because we're in John 3.16. They say that familiarity breeds contempt, but I beg you not to let that happen this morning because the things that we are talking about are the most important truths in the entire world. They are a matter of life and death. In fact, they are the only matter of life and death. And you know what? Satan knows this. And so he works really hard to get us to doubt the truths of John 3.16. This fact is compounded by the reality that doubting God is a fundamental human issue. You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. The serpent comes to Eve. And what is the very first thing that he says to her? Did God actually say, what did the serpent, what did Satan do or try to do to Eve? He tried to sow doubts about God. In other words, can God really be trusted? Does he really love you? Does he really have your best interests in mind? Can you really know that he is going to save you? Friends, these are the same questions that the devil tempts us with today. And so I'd like to, in the next few moments... Take time to address two additional major areas of doubts. Doubts about God's love and doubts about our salvation. Let's begin with doubts about God's love. Perhaps you have never experienced true love from another human being. And therefore you have a difficult time understanding what love truly is. Perhaps you have experienced great pain in your life and you can't fathom that a loving God would allow this to be your experience. I know that there are those of you who are here today. Or perhaps there is something in your past or even in your present that makes you doubt that God could ever love you. This message is for you. Finally, you might actually be here today and simply don't believe that you are in need of God's love. You might be fine with the reality that he exists, but you really don't think that it matters all that much. What do we do with these doubts? How do we gain freedom from our past, our pain, our pride, and most of all, our age-old enemy, pain in the neck, the snake? The answer for all of our doubts about God's love are here in John 3.16. It tells us that God loved the world. You know this, okay? God loved the world. Who's the world? The world is us, every person in here. And that his love for us led him to do something. This something is the greatest thing that has ever been done. He gave us his son. 
As I read the New Testament, really read the entire Bible, but specifically as I read the New Testament, I am continually amazed at how one little word can hold such massive amounts of truth. One little word. And we have tons of them here in John three sixteen. Look at it with me. God loved, world, gave, only, son, believes, perish, eternal life. All little words with massive amounts of truth behind them. Just massive. For the sake of our time, I want to just look at two of these here this morning. First, we're going to look at gave, and then we'll look at believe. Let's begin with gave. What does it mean that God gave his son? God's giving of his son resulted in his one and only perfect, holy, righteous God himself, son, becoming a man, becoming one of us, and then being brutally murdered on an old Roman cross for our sin. That's what it means that God gave. He gave him to die. Brothers and sisters, if you doubt today, you know you have to look no further than the cross. There is simply no greater evidence of God's love for you than the cross. Now, I know that this truth is a familiar one. It's one that we hear over and over again. And so I thought that maybe it would be helpful for us to go to the Old Testament this morning and look at a new and fresh, perhaps, way of looking at the cross and specifically at God's love giving. So, I'm going to tell you the story of Hosea. Hosea is what we call a minor prophet. And you might be completely unfamiliar with this story. So let me give you a little summary. As an illustration of God's relationship with the people of Israel, he tells a prophet by the name of Hosea to go and marry a whore named Gomer. Now, if you're shocked that I use the term whore this morning, you have to realize that that's the word that the Bible uses. That's the word that Hosea uses. And I believe that he uses that word because God wants to shock us. And so if you're shocked this morning, great, because that's what God wants you to be. He wants you to be shocked. And if you have a problem with that term, you can talk to Hosea when you get to heaven. All right? And deal with him. Not my issue. So being obedient to God, Hosea goes and marries Gomer, and she conceives a son. God tells Hosea to name the son Jezreel, which represents Israel's bloody and idolatrous past. Gomer then conceives again, this time as a girl. And actually, if you read the text, you can see that Hosea is not actually sure if this girl is even his. He's not. Because when you're married to a whore, you just never know. And so God comes to Hosea and he says, you need to name this girl No Mercy. I'm not kidding you. Her name was No Mercy. Now, I'm pretty sure that that's not one of the top 100 baby names, okay? It's not one of those on those lists. In fact, can you imagine this girl? She goes to school the first day and the teacher says, what's your name? No Mercy. She probably had a difficult upbringing, but her mom's name was Gomer. um, So that was probably uh, mom... Maybe some reason for her difficulties in life there. But anyways, the purpose of the name, though, is this. It's to picture the fact that God is done with Israel and he's no longer going to have mercy on them. Gomer then conceives a third time. Still don't know if this one's uh, hers or not. It's a boy. And God tells Hosea to name the son, not my people, showing that Israel would not be considered God's people any longer. He's done. He's finished. He's had enough. Now, thankfully, that's not the end of the story, but it actually gets worse before it gets better. After the children are born, Gomer continues in her whoredom, and eventually she leaves Hosea, chasing after whatever man will have her. Her situation eventually becomes so bad that in chapter 3, we see her on the auction block, ready to be sold to the highest bidder. 
Okay, she's, got, she's fallen so far into sin and so far away from Hosea that now she is being sold. She's being auctioned off to the highest bidder. And guess what God does? He comes to Hosea and he says, you need to go and you need to buy her back. You need to redeem her. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm Hosea, I'm saying, uh, God, you know, enough is enough. Enough is enough. Okay, she slept with every guy in town. She's embarrassed me. I've got three kids, two of them I don't even know are mine, and you want me to go buy her back. And God says, yes, and not only are you to buy her back, but you are to love her, to love her. And you are to love her in the same way that I love the people of Israel. Go buy her back. And Hosea was quite a guy because God said to do it. And actually, it doesn't even say that he complained. I'm kind of putting that in there, imagining, at least it would be me. But he goes and he buys her back. He had to actually scrape together. He has some money and he has to scrape other things together to barter, to trade her. And he goes down to the sound center and he buys her back. Quite a story, isn't it? Not something that you might expect to see in the Bible. Maybe on the Lifetime channel on Sunday afternoon or something like that. But certainly not in the Old Testament. But I guarantee that it's here. You can read it. Probably most of you will when you get home uh, this afternoon. But here's the real question for us this morning, Bethel. What does this have to do with you and me? What does this have to do with you and me? And to apply this story to our lives, we have to know and understand who do these characters represent. There's really only two, okay? There's Hosea and there's Gomer. Who do they represent? It's pretty obvious that Hosea represents who? Represents God. And let me ask you this question, and you might need to take a deep breath and swallow hard here, but who is Gomer in the story? Gomer in the story is you, and Gomer in the story is me. They represent us. Our story isn't all that different from hers. God created us for himself, and yet we ran after other gods. Despite his love and care, we treated him horribly and followed our sinful passions and desires. And because of our whoredom, we were sold into slavery. We were on the auction block. We were in bondage to sin and the devil. No way to free ourselves. And despite everything that we had done to God, he continued to pursue us and ultimately bought us back to be his. And I imagine, I was thinking about this on Friday, I hadn't planned to put this in here, but I imagine that there are some of you here today who say, you know, I was saved at five years old. I've not been a a whore. I've not been a spiritual whore. And what you need to understand is God might not have saved you or bought you out of whoredom, but he bought you from whoredom. That if he hadn't saved you when you were five years old, you would have been a spiritual whore right now. So you were either bought out of it or you were bought from it. And don't miss this, friends. You need to get this. Here's a great principle. Everything in the Old Testament, particularly stories like this, are meant to point us towards Christ. When you read the Old Testament, you always got to have your Christ finder out. You got to be saying, where's Jesus in this story? Where's Jesus in this story? How is this pointing to Christ? And I want you to think with me here this morning. In the story of Hosea and Gomer, where's Christ? Where is he? You think? I'm going to give you a second. I want you to think. See if you can get this. Where is he? Where is Christ? Friends, we see him as the price for our redemption. We see him as the payment for our freedom. What did God have to give or what did God have to pay to get us back? He had to pay Christ. Peter tells us this, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 
Friends, you can't look to the cross and doubt that God loves you. It is undeniable proof. He gave up his son, his one, his only perfect son as a payment for you. What greater sign of love could there be than this? So if we doubt God's love today, just look to the cross. Understand what you have been saved from and that you are redeemed and you are his today. It's the greatest truth in the world, is it not? That you are his. All right. Now, in the few minutes that we have remaining here, I want to address perhaps the most common doubt that we face in the church today. And that is doubt regarding our salvation. I've had the opportunity to minister here at Bethel uh, for the greater part of a decade now. And I have to tell you that this is probably the most significant issue that people in the church struggle with. And that is knowing whether or not they are actually saved. I can share that even personally for me, that in my past, this is something that I have deeply struggled with. Doubts about salvation are real, and they can be heart-wrenching and painful. And as with Eve, the devil loves to make us doubt, and not only question God's love, but also our salvation. So, let me try and help you this morning. How do we find freedom from these doubts? I believe the key issue from this matter in John 3.16 is believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him. John uses the word believe 98 times in his gospel. And he even tells us that this is the reason that the entire gospel of John is written. So that you might believe that Jesus is the son of God. So if the apostle John were here with us today and we said, hey John, can you tell us how we can have, how we can overcome doubts about our salvation? He would probably, I believe, say you need to believe. But what exactly does it mean to believe? This is a common word. And of course, with common words, sometimes we lose their meaning. We say things like, I believe it will rain today. Or I believe I'll have another piece of pizza. Or I believe that the Cubs will win the World Series. At least someday, maybe. Nobody really believes that anymore, do they? (laughs) They shouldn't. And uh, anyways, I don't believe... That our normal usages of the word believe are exactly what John means here in his gospel. And so we need to look at this word with fresh eyes today. And you're going to need to listen to me very carefully now. Because if you don't, you're going to get confused. But I'm going to try and be clear. But the best explanation that I have found of what true belief is comes from a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a, a Puritan, great Puritan pastor and theologian. Uh, He's had a tremendous impact, by the way, on you, even if you don't know it, specifically because uh, Steve has been tremendously influenced by Jonathan Edwards. Edwards taught that true belief consists of two separate but equally important components, light and heat. Light and heat. Belief equals light and heat. Let's talk about light. In order to be saved, we have to have proper illumination, okay? We have to believe or affirm, or assent to the right truths. It's kind of like the light bulb going off in our head, okay? There are certain things that we have to say, okay, I get it. What are those things? John 3, 16 will tell us that they are these. God exists. Jesus is God's son. We are perishing because of our sin. And Jesus' death and resurrection make eternal life available to us. This is the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that this is the gospel by which you are saved. In order to be saved, you need to affirm these things. You need to say, yes, I believe or I grasp onto that truth. However, too many people stop here because this is only half of the story. 
Edwards taught that simply affirming these truths is not enough. If we truly believe them, they will result in heat, or I like to say it better, heat in the heart. Which was represented by a burning desire and passion and love and treasuring of Jesus Christ. To truly believe in him is not to simply say, yes, I believe these truths. It's also to say, I want to follow him. He is my Lord and Savior. I'm treasuring him. I'm burning within because of him. Edwards calls these the affections. You know, James 2.19 tells us that the demons believe in God. We know that they're not saved, right? Who's the best theologian on the planet? It's not Brad Lagos. Close, okay? Who is it? It's the devil, right? It's the devil. He's the best theologian on the planet. He believes in Jesus, right? He knows that all of those facts that we saw there are true. Is he saved? No, why not? Because he hasn't come to Christ and given him his life. He hasn't surrendered. He isn't following Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He doesn't desire and treasure and love Jesus Christ. So Bethel, if you want to know if you're saved today, ask yourself this question. Have I surrendered my life to Christ? Do I, do I not only affirm the truths about him, but have I also received him as my Lord and Savior? Have I realized that I am perishing and have I looked to him to rescue me? Do I not only have light, do I not only have it in my head, but do I also have it in my heart? And I just want to say to you today, if you love Jesus, okay, if you, if you affirm the truths of the gospel and you have a love for Jesus and a desire, and simply the fact that you're being here is good evidence here today, and you're, we're worshiping him, and as the word is preached, there's warmness in your heart, there's really good evidence that you are saved. I actually believe the first part of John chapter 3 helps us with this. I'm not going to read all of it. But in John chapter 3, most people miss this about 316. Jesus is actually talking to a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is uh, having a hard time understanding what it means to be born again. He actually says to Jesus, does this mean that I need to go back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? Which is not only impossible, but fairly disturbing, I think. But Nicodemus doesn't get it because it's not something he can get on his own. And so look at what Jesus says to him in verses 14 and 15 of John 3. He says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What's the connection here between looking at the Son of Man and believing? Let's look at the story from Numbers 21. Jesus is referring to Numbers 21. The Israelites are going from Egypt to the promised land. They're wandering in the wilderness. And as they often did, they began to complain against God. And so what does God do? He sends these fiery serpents, the Bible says, poisonous snakes. The poisonous snakes begin to bite the people. And everybody who's been bitten is dying. Okay, they're dying. Thousands and thousands of people are dying. And all of a sudden, the people run to Moses and they say, pray to God that he will forgive us. And so God goes to Mo, or Moses goes to God, and in his mercy and grace, he says, okay, here's what you'll do, Moses. You take a bronze serpent, you put it on a pole, you lift the pole up, and whoever looks at the serpent will be healed. Will be healed. And so Moses does it, and the people are healed, and the snakes go away. Now, I want you to remember what we said earlier about Hosea. Everything in the Old Testament is meant to point us to Christ. And so look at verses 14 again. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What does it mean to believe in the Son of Man there in the context of this? It means that you have to look to him. The Israelites were bitten by the snake. How were they saved? First, they had to believe the fact that looking at the snake could save them. And then they actually had to look at the snake. It wouldn't have done them any good to say, yes, I believe the snake can, can heal me. I can believe that looking at the snake can heal me, but then not look. They wouldn't have been healed. That wouldn't have been belief. They were infected with the poison. And the only way for them to be healed was to look at the snake. They had to believe that what God says he would do, what God said he would do, he would do, and then look at the snake and be healed. Friends, the same is true for us. If we truly believe that Christ is our Savior, it will result in us looking to him to save us. We have to believe the truth that we are infected with sin and that we are perishing. And that without Christ, we have no hope. And in doing so, we place our faith in him and look to Christ. I don't know of any better way of explaining this than to tell you the conversion story of a man named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You maybe have heard of him before. Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers, probably the greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul himself. He was a pastor in London during the latter part of the 19th century, and still today he is known as the Prince of Preachers. You can literally read all of his sermons online. I encourage you to do that. I want you to listen carefully to the story of his salvation. It's a longer story, but I want you to listen to it as we conclude. He was 16. He said this, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, Isaiah 45. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. The preacher began thus. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You will never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father, no look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating in great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend into heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When he had gone to about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. 
Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not much take notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I've been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. And now I can say, ere since by faith I saw that stream, thy flowing wound supply, redeeming love has been my theme and will be till I die. And friends, I just want to finish with this this morning. How do you overcome your doubts about salvation? Just ask yourself this question. Have I looked to Jesus? Have I looked to Jesus? If you are looking to Jesus, you can know for certain that you're saved. It's really that simple. You can know without a doubt that you are saved. How can I say that? Well, Jesus said it in John 6. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, get this, I will, say it with me, never cast out. Never cast out. Will you stand with me?